From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And this was quite an exciting weekend here in budget land. Senate leaders finally unveiled their border security and war funding bill after months of backroom negotiations and false starts. But this $118 billion package of emergency spending, combined with tougher restrictions for migrants at the southern border, already promises to become a real slugfest. Senate Republicans appear leery, if not downright hostile to the bill, and it's not clear the House will even take it up. So where do things stand, and will Ukraine and Israel ever get their long-delayed aid? And whatever happened to a bipartisan package of tax breaks that passed the House with flying colors? The Senate's top tax writer promised quick action, but can he deliver now? And what's happening with a House bill to lift a cap on state and local tax deductions, that politically charged SALT issue? Lots to talk about today, and joining me for that, the answers to those questions and more are Caitlin Riley, who covers tax policy for CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Caitlin. Thanks, David. And making his debut on the CQ Budget Podcast is Mark Satter, a defense reporter at CQ Roll Call, who covered the rollout of the war funding and border package over the weekend. Thanks for being here, Mark. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And Mark, let me start with you, because all eyes are on this emergency national security package that Senate negotiators worked months to cobble together. They finally reached a bipartisan deal on border policy that had held up the bill. So first, tell us a little about what's in this thing. Sure. So, I mean, this is a kind of mammoth supplemental spending bill. It would appropriate about $118 billion, just a little bit over that, in emergency national security funding. That includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, uh, American interests in the Indo-Pacific. It includes humanitarian aid for uh, people in the Gaza Strip, uh, as well as in Ukraine. And it would appropriate uh, something like $20 billion worth of uh, border security funding for changes that have been proposed at the southern border. And that is kind of the crux of the bill. Um, Those border policy changes and the money within is key to unlocking the national security funding that uh, Democrats have been pushing for. Yeah, and it's not really the border money that's the big hang-up here. As you say, $20 billion is a lot of money, and there might be a little resistance to some of it. But the real issue is the policy changes that restrict migrant flows at the border, right? That's right. And I mean, the negotiators who have, as you said, have been working on this for months, have rolled this out as what they feel is a bipartisan compromise, uh, neither side getting everything that they wanted, but thinking that, you know, this could be something that meets people in the middle. And it's, it's includes some of the most substantive border policy changes that we've seen in years. Yeah. And I know one of the biggest policy changes and the most talked about leading up to the bill's release is they put a provision in there giving the, the administration, the White House, emergency authority 
to just shut down the border, at least between between the legal points of entry, if the migrant flow reached a certain level and it became very controversial, and it could still sink this thing, right? Because you know the House Speaker Mike Johnson was out there for days saying saying this this deal would allow five thousand migrants a day to enter the country before the border could be shut down. Senate negotiators denied that. They say that five thousand is a is a limit of migrant encounters, is what they call it. But but that those those migrants would not be allowed into the country. A lot of you know the devil's in the detail here, and and exactly the the precise language and how the Homeland Security Department would interpret these things could be really key as to whether enough concerns about the border would be satisfied. Um, to make Republicans really comfortable with this bill. It is a bipartisan deal in the Senate, we should say. Uh, the Oklahoma Senator Jim Langford was working around the clock on this and has signed off on it. But, Mark, it doesn't seem like a lot of Senate Republicans even are very thrilled about it. No, I mean, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, I mean, even the Republican leader Mitch McConnell, he put out a statement following the bill's release that was... You know, kind of vaguely supportive, but tepid. Uh, it was not this kind of full-throated support uh, saying that the Senate should take this up immediately and pass it. And, you know, as you said, um, we're seeing that in both chambers. I mean, also in the Senate, Steve Daines now has said he's a no. Um, some more uh, hard-right Republicans like Mike Lee have come out against it. Um, and in the House, of course, Speaker Johnson has said this is not going to get a vote. Uh, and uh, Steve Scalise has said the same. So it's really unclear what the future is for this legislation. We will see this week kind of how the Senate takes it up. Yeah, I want to talk about the House in a minute. But on the Senate side, I mean, they need they need 60 votes to pass it, right? It seems conceivable to me that they could get 60. I mean, it seems like most Democrats are supportive, not all. I mean, we should say there is there is opposition on the Democratic side, too. You've got Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who's been adamant that he doesn't want more aid to Israel without more safeguards on, on how they conduct their campaign in Gaza. And you've got, you've got some progressive Democrats on the left wing that are not happy with this border package either. I saw Alex Padilla of California came out last night as we tape on Monday, blasting the bill. He's a no, saying that these border policies are too restrictive, a member of the Hispanic caucus, we should say. So no no guarantee on the Democratic side either, but it seems as though most Democrats are on board. The question is, can they, then if they have most, the question is, how many Republicans would they need to get it over the finish line? I mean, they need 60 total. It's a 51-49 Senate. You know, it seems as though they could get there in the Senate unless Republicans just rebel entirely and take a position as a caucus to say, no, forget this, we're not comfortable. I don't know. Can you read the tea leaves on that? We, we will have a first test vote on Wednesday. First procedural vote comes up then. That'll be a good test, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, we'll see how it how things shake out on Wednesday. But I agree. I think it's certainly conceivable that there are enough moderate lawmakers on both sides who would go for this deal in the Senate. You know, you'll when this kind of thing comes down the pipeline, it's 
I would say typical that you lose the people on the fringes. But yeah, I think we could see some movement on it in the Senate. But then, you know, and as we mentioned, the real question will be what happens then? Yeah, I mean, although even in the Senate, it's a high hurdle now. And, and you know, the other issue is even if some Republicans might be willing to vote for it, they don't want to vote for it quickly. There's going to be a real uh, battle here over the clock, right? I mean, right. Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Majority Leader, is certainly eager to get this passed this week before they leave for a two-week scheduled recess, if that recess actually happens. He wants this done by this week so that they get it before the recess. We've already seen pushback from Republicans. I know Lindsey Graham was out there over the weekend saying, no way are we going to let Chuck Schumer jam us on this. We need This needs to have time to be considered. They are not eager to do it quickly. Yeah. And Schumer knows he's going to probably need to uh, have time to negotiate amendments on this thing. I know we had to work last weekend, Mark, to as we saw this bill come out. Uh, I'm wondering if we have to work this coming weekend to get, the, as we see floor activity in the Senate, if they're ever going to get this done. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, it's uh, not unheard of that they would cancel all or part of their upcoming recess to continue work on this. Um, but again, we'll have this test vote on Wednesday. That may be a bellwether for you know how things shake out uh, for the following weeks. Yeah. And then I don't know, it's it's going to be interesting, I think, how Mitch McConnell as Republican leader plays this now and how Republicans generally handle it. Because we should point out, Mark, they've been, you know, they were the ones who made border security the linchpin for, for a deal on Ukraine aid, right? It was their insistence on a border deal to, bat, to get additional aid for Ukraine. That's right. And- if they now say, no, we don't want these measures to tighten the border, you know, there, there's going to be a charge of hypocrisy there. Now, then some of them can say, well, this just isn't tough enough, and so we're not willing to back it. But boy, the punchback on that is it's still better than what you got now, right? Yeah, that's a it's a hard line to walk politically. Like you said, I mean, Republicans have been agitating for border policy changes for months. And now it seems that they're getting at least part of what they've been asking for. The policies that are proposed here are certainly more strict than what we have on the books, like you said. Yeah. Then the other side of that is the policies, not only would they strengthen security at the border and kind of restrict the flow of migrants, but they unlock this national security spending which uh, Republican leaders, including Mitch McConnell, have also been agitating for for months. We have heard floor speech after floor speech from McConnell talking about the importance of Ukraine aid, the importance of supporting Israel. And to now pump the brakes on that would be just a strange political move. So it's it's really a tightrope that they're walking here. It is. It really is. But some of these Republicans just won't be satisfied with this. We know there's there's still complaints that uh, on the border stuff that they haven't tightened parole policies enough. I'm not quite familiar with all the details on that aspect of it, but Republicans view the current system of humanitarian parole as just sort of a get out of jail free card that the White House can can use at the drop of a hat. And just admit thousands of migrants, you know, sort of exempt them from the normal rules. And Republicans say that just, 
you know, that just is a huge loophole that hasn't been closed in this. How adamant they're going to be for that, whether they're willing to, to take half a loaf instead of the whole loaf, I think is the key question there as to whether they accept this thing. And then we should say, right, this, there's also some Republicans who just don't support more aid for Ukraine. Certainly. Certainly. And I mean, that's that's an emerging dynamic that has kind of been, you know, changing as, as time goes on. Uh, and we see that in both chambers. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that, you know, also as part of this package, there are provisions even related to Ukraine that Republicans have been asking for. Uh, one such provision is that it would require the Biden administration to submit some kind of strategy to Congress regarding the American support for Ukraine and its war. That's been an ask for months uh, from Republicans who have complained that we may be sleepwalking into another Afghanistan or something like that. Now, whether you buy that that's the case or not, you know this is at least a step toward correcting that. Yeah, that's a good point because they are they they've been they've always been questioning what is the end game for Ukraine, right? It's been exactly. a stalemate with Russia for so long that there is this growing resistance. How can we just keep pouring more and more money in there and nothing changes? You know, what is the end game? So what is how does the bill address that? It requires some kind of explanation from the White House. Right. So it, it requires the Biden administration to quote submit a strategy to Congress. Uh, you know, what that might look like is unclear, uh, you know, until we actually see it, but it would at least put on paper, you know, some kind of plan. One other piece of this is that the bill would appropriate $60 billion for Ukraine, but more than half of that money is actually going back to the U.S. defense industrial base, and it's being used to replenish DOD stocks of weapons and equipment. It's being used to kind of spit up manufacturing in the U.S., uh, which has really come online since the start of the war with Ukraine. So that's just an, a kind of a sidebar that it's not $60 billion that's being sent to Ukraine in some kind of lump sum. Uh, a lot of that is being invested back in the States. Right. But it is it is um, $60 billion for the Ukraine war effort, broadly yes. speaking. And we should say that's that's slightly more than half of this entire package that shows how much, you know, how much is needed for Ukraine as opposed to these other issues. Where all the big money is, it's in Ukraine. They've been saying for, for months that more aid is needed. The Pentagon, I think, was saying that, you know, they've made their last delivery last December and there's nothing left in the kitty without a new infusion of cash. There's a lot riding on this Ukraine money. And, you know, and, and lawmakers have been been being told for, for weeks, too, that Ukraine is just running out of bullets, right? They're running out of artillery shells. I mean, at some point here, at some point here, they can't hold off the Russians if, if more isn't coming in. That's right. I mean, there are reports that they're running out of ammunition. They are uh, rationing what they have currently. And like you said, the uh, the conflict is largely frozen along the front line in Ukraine's east. And of course, Russia is a much larger country, much larger economy. Uh, they have the resources to continue, but it, without American support, it's not clear that Ukraine does. So a lot riding on this bill. And meanwhile, Mark, that's just if it gets out of the Senate which is a tall order, but then if it gets out, it faces the House, where the House Speaker has declared this thing dead on arrival. He doesn't trust this border deal. I mean, what's going to happen over there? 
That's a great question. We have no idea what's going to happen in the House, uh, if they'll take it up or not. You know, that really remains to be seen. I think that in the House, we have seen that Speaker Mike Johnson is walking a similar political tightrope, um, although it may be easier there to justify not taking up for aid for Ukraine because there is larger opposition in the House to it. But yeah, I mean, well, we'll see. It is hard to imagine that this kind of package would just kind of be in limbo after passing the Senate, but it's really unclear at this point. Well, but that was the other big development over this weekend, right, was that Johnson launched this preemptive strike against this package by introducing his own bill just for Israel. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, Johnson introduced a standalone package for Israel aid and also for American troops in the Middle East. That is um, just under $18 billion. And he is saying that he would like to take that up this week. He calls it a clean, standalone Israel package. The issue with that is that even if the House were to pass it, the Senate is unlikely to take it up because the Senate has just passed its own supplemental bill that we've been talking about. It's introduced. It hasn't passed. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, it's introduced. Yeah. It. Uh, so, yeah, unclear what will happen uh, with both of those bills. And, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see, Mark, if the House takes up this, their Israel-only bill, you know, Johnson's calculating that can pass because there's bipartisan support for Israel. But on the other hand, he's already gotten pushback on this thing because it's from his party's right flank because it's not paid for. It's emergency money that just, you know, increases the deficit. He didn't put any offsets in there this time. Unlike last year, there was a bill you might folks might remember that he tried to pay for it with cuts to the IRS, although uh, actually the Congressional Budget Office said it would actually increase the deficit even more. Because when you when you when you cut back on tax enforcement, you get less tax revenue. Uh, so that sort of backfired on him. This time, there's no offset whatsoever, and we've already seen the House Freedom Caucus, the party's rebellious wing, issue a statement over the weekend saying they're not on board. This has to be paid for. And by the way, we don't like uh, we don't want Ukraine aid anyway. So that he's gonna he's gonna suffer some slings and arrows just for doing his Israel bill. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems so. It seems so. And then we don't know where the Democrat, the House Democrats are on it, right? I think that we don't really have a good sense of that yet. Um, you know, like you said, there is seemingly broad bipartisan support for Israel aid, but, you know, it's just not clear at this point where this bill might go, if anywhere. House Democrats, I think, are supposed to meet Tuesday in a closed door conference to discuss this bill. The minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, was sort of keeping his powder dry as to which way he was going, although he certainly did say that he, you know, the responsible thing to do is how he put it is to pass a more comprehensive package. He clearly would favor the Senate bill, but whether he would whip opposition to this Israel aid bill, the politics get dicey there for Democrats because if they vote against it, it looks like they're voting against Israel, right? So it's sort of... right. Um, a little politically tricky there as to whether they want to vote this thing down in the interest of promoting the Senate bill or, you know, and, and have to explain that vote or just or just back this bill, knowing it's a symbolic thing that isn't going anywhere anyway. Uh, 
I don't know how, I'm not sure how the House Democrats want to play that. Tricky politics for them too. But so it's a, it seems like, seems like this House vote, it's not going to cut cleanly along party lines, right? You, you could picture members of both parties voting for it. You can picture members of both parties voting against it. I can't quite weigh where the balance is there. But if they try to, if they try to do it quickly by suspending the rules, they're going to need a two-thirds majority vote, right? So that's kind of a tall order with this slim majority House Republican. Uh, it, it's, uh, I don't know. That's a little unpredictable to me right now. Any guess which way that's going? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's difficult to speculate on that. But, you know, as we're talking about it, I could see a situation in which House Democrats don't whip the vote on this. And like you said, you have, you know, probably a majority of Democrats voting for it. I mean, it's Israel aid. They generally support that. Um, you know, it's a clean bill. There's nothing attached to it at the moment. Right. Um, yeah. Tricky. Uh, politically tricky in both chambers. You know, again, we'll, we're just going to have to see where this where this goes. This, we're headed for a real slugfest here, I think, and and I don't know how long it's going to take to resolve. I don't know if the Senate can get it through this week or not. We will be watching and covering it all for you. But meanwhile, uh, there's yet more brewing here uh, in Congress right now because of uh, on the tax front, which brings me to Caitlin, because Caitlin, the House with flying colors passed this bipartisan tax package, these breaks for business, an expanded child tax credit. It was paid for, right, by reining in the uh, an employee retention credit. It looked like smooth sailing there. And I know the Senate's top tax writer was promising quick action. He was trying to get it done, I think, by last week, right, for the filing tax filing death season. That didn't happen. Can he deliver now? Where is this package heading? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, passed in the House with flying colors. I think the vote was uh, 357 to 70, which was um, a pretty big deal. Uh, Finance Chairman uh, Ron Wyden has been saying he wants to get this passed quickly because, as you mentioned, we're in filing season. The problem there is that Senate Republicans have said that they will not take what was passed in the House and just throw their support behind it in the Senate. Senate Republicans weren't a part of these negotiations. They were between um, Senator Wyden in the Senate and House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith. And so Senate Republicans want their say on what's in this bill. They've raised issues with um, work requirements attached to the child tax credit. Some have also taken issue with uh, the employee retention credit um, using that as a pay for. And so Senate Republicans are calling for a markup. They're calling for amendments to the bill. So it is looking like that will slow down the process, particularly if the Senate is leaving for a two-week recess next week. Yeah. And I mean, it was striking, Caitlin, 357 to 70, you said was the House vote. I mean, that is a lopsided margin in this era of divided government where everything's so polarized, it is, it's kind of impressive that they could even assemble that and blow it through the House with a strong bipartisan vote like that. Sort of surprised me. 
you know, that was an achievement right there, but I guess it's going to run into a buzzsaw now on the Senate side. It seems like mostly because of this child tax credit, Republicans just aren't comfortable, I guess, with the whether there's enough work requirements attached to that. Yeah, the provision that many of them have brought up is that the bill would allow families to use their previous year's income to to start to qualify for the credit. Um, the way the credit's structured is families don't qualify for any of it until they have um, made $2,500 a year. And so at that point, they're allowed to start um, qualifying for the credit. Obviously, And the more they make, the more they're able to qualify for. Senate Republicans are saying that by allowing a family to use the previous year's income to qualify, that it, that waters down the work requirement because in theory you could have worked in the previous tax year and, and not worked in the current tax year and still qualify. And so that seems to be the provision that many of them are taking aim at when it comes to the child tax credit. Um, and then the other issue here is if the Senate amends it and sends it back to the House, the question will always be sort of maintaining that delicate balance where the bill passed with really strong margins in the House, but even then House Democrats were critical of the child tax credit expansion for doing too little. So it becomes a question of how far can you push against the child tax credit and then maintain strong support if the bill changes, passes the Senate and goes back to the House. Yeah, it, there's a lot of in the weeds detail there, but basically it it does speak to the basic partisan divide here on tax policy when when it comes to this child tax credit, right? Because Republicans are very suspicious of anything that might provide a disincentive for people to work, and they worry that that this kind of um, you know monthly payments of for child support might encourage people not to work, whereas Democrats say this child tax credit when they expanded it during the pandemic, has done wonders. It's lifted millions of families out of poverty, and they, they don't think it provides a disincentive at all, but just a leg up uh, to get ahead. And so there, there is, I think, the basic partisan divide over this thing, right? Yeah. And for what it's worth, and Senate Finance Chairman Wyden has, has trotted out this evidence, you've had a number of groups on and off the Hill say that in their assessment that this wouldn't significantly um, significantly change work requirements or disincentivize work. We've heard that from Tax Foundation, Joint Committee on Tax uh, Joint Committee on Taxation, and then also um, there have been scholars out of the American Enterprise Institute who have come down on on both sides on that question. So now that the Senate is tied up this week with the with the border uh, war funding package, there's no way this is coming to the Senate floor this week before the recess. Could Senate Finance Committee still have a markup maybe this week? I suppose I think that's possible. Um, Senator Wyden, every time he's asked whether there will be a markup, uh, sort of pivots the question to, or pivots his answer to talk about how this, how the Senate needs to act really quickly, and so he's not committed to a markup and and seems resistant to the idea. But yes, I I think um, it's certainly it's certainly possible, and it it may come down to that. All right, so we'll watch for that. But before we go, Caitlin, I need to ask you because one of the one of the other 
complaints about this tax package was it didn't provide relief from the cap on state and local tax deductions known as SALT, where these a lot of people in high tax states, these lawmakers from New York, New Jersey, California, are really eager. They've been eager for a long time to lift a $10,000 cap on that deduction, saying their constituents are just hurt too much by that because they can't itemize enough. And this package doesn't do it. They didn't put that in. There's a lot of opposition to lifting the cap. So to get this across the finish line in the House, you might remember Caitlin has covered this uh, thoroughly, was that Johnson cut a deal with some of these New York Republicans and said, okay, we'll, we'll do a separate bill on the SALT cap. And somehow that made it out of the House Rules Committee last week, right? So where does that stand? Well, yeah, it's not on the schedule for this week. There's the, the possibility for it to be added. Um, the bill would allow, would double the cap for married couples uh, filing together, but it it, it doesn't seem to be a sure thing that it will make it through the House. And if it gets to the Senate, it also um, would face hurdles there because Senate Republicans are, are pretty opposed to lifting the cap. And it's a much more limited measure than the, you know, than the full lifting of the cap that, that these New Yorkers want, right? Yeah, it would only be for tax year 2023. Um, it would really only make a difference for married couples filing jointly it would lift the cap from 10,000 to 20,000 and it would limit that increase to um, folks making under 500,000 a year so there would be an income uh, limit also attached to it so it is pretty pretty targeted pretty limited um, which I would think would bode better for the bill, um, but there's still opposition to it. Yeah. And what's also been interesting is they've really painted this, uh, re Republicans backing this and the real drivers behind this have really painted this as a marriage penalty that's been written into the tax code. And so they've sort of opened up this political argument that we don't want to disincentivize um, marriage through the tax code. And so that does seem to have uh, caught the attention of some Republicans who may not have otherwise been um, felt really strongly either way on this bill. So probably won't happen this week, but what's your guess? Can it get through the House? I really don't know. Uh, that's not fair. You got to make a prediction. <laughs> um, the politics on salt are, are interesting because it is something that more often affects blue states, which tend, which tend to be higher tax states. And so there does tend to be Democratic uh, support for this. But I, um, I really, David, I really, I don't know. <laughs> Caitlin is copping out on me, folks. No <laughs> prediction here. Yeah, just call me back in a few weeks. <laughs> That's not fair. So you have to make a prediction and then I can call you when you're wrong a week later. <laughs> Yeah, that's a hard one to say. Uh, question whether they could, eat, whether Republicans could pass a rule for this measure, because that's a party line vote, and you've got opposition among Republicans, so they probably have to suspend the rules again and need a two thirds majority to pass it, and then the politics get dicey there. So, um, Caitlin doesn't want to say which way it's going to go, but I guess we'll have to tune in and find out. <laughs> I guess, but that's all the time we have for now. If you like what you heard here, you should subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter. 
which hits your inbox every morning the Congress is in session. You can find that at CQ.com. My thanks to Caitlin Riley for joining me. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, David. And Mark Satter for joining me. Thanks for being here, Mark. Thanks, David. And thank you all for listening. You can find all of our coverage at CQ.com or RollCall.com. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We'll see you next time.